welcome to Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. MacDonald. In this episode, I'll be reading and discussing the section Retired from Service from Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra, and it's all dealing with the topic of the death of God. So let's get started. Retired from Service not long after Zarathustra had freed himself from the sorcerer, however, he again saw someone sitting beside the path he was going. A tall, dark man with a pale, haggard face. This man greatly vexed him. Alas, he said to his heart, there sits disguised affliction. He seems to be of the priestly sort. What do they want in my kingdom? What? I have hardly escaped from that sorcerer. Must another magician cross my path? Some wizard who operates by laying on hands, some gloomy miracle worker by the grace of God, some anointed world slanderer, may the devil take him. But the devil is never in his proper place. He always comes too late, that confounded dwarf and clubfoot. Thus cursed Zarathustra impatiently in his heart, and considered how, with averted gaze, he might slip past the dark man. But behold, it turned out differently, for at the same moment the sitting man had already seen him, and not unlike someone whom an unexpected happiness has befallen, he jumped up and went towards Zarathustra. Whoever you may be, traveller, he said, help one who has gone astray, a seeker, an old man who may easily come to harm here. The world here is strange and remote to me, and I hear the howling of wild animals, and he who could have afforded me protection is himself no more. I was seeking the last pious man, a saint and hermit, who alone in his forest had as yet heard nothing of what all the world knows today. What does all the world know today? asked Zarathustra. This perhaps, that the old god in whom all the world once believed no longer lives. That is so, answered the old man sadly, and I served that old god until his last hour. Now, however, I am retired from service, without master, and yet I am not free, neither am I merry, even for an hour, except in memories. That is why I climbed into these mountains, that I might at last celebrate a festival once more, as becomes an old pope and church father. For no, I am the last pope, a festival of pious memories and divine services. But now he himself is dead, the most pious of men, that saint in the forest who used continually to praise his God with singing and muttering. When I found his hut, I no longer found him himself, but I did find two wolves in it, howling over his death, for all animals loved him. Then I hurried away. Had I come into these forests and mountains in vain, then my heart decided to seek another, the most pious of all those who do not believe in God, to seek Zarathustra. Thus spoke the old man and gazed with penetrating eyes at him who stood before him. Zarathustra, however, took the old pope's hand and for a long time regarded it admiringly. Behold, venerable man, he said then, what a long and beautiful hand. It is the hand of one who has always distributed blessings, but now it holds fast him you seek, me, Zarathustra. It is I, the godless Zarathustra, the same who says, who is more godless than I, that I may rejoice in his teaching. Thus spoke Zarathustra and pierced with his glance the thoughts and reservations of the old pope. At last the latter began. 
He who loved and possessed him most, he has now lost him the most also. Behold, am I myself not the more godless of us two now? But who could rejoice in that? You served him to the last, asked Zarathustra thoughtfully, after a profound silence. Do you know how he died? Is it true what they say, that pity choked him? that he saw how man hung on the cross and could not endure it, that love for man became his hell and at last his death. The old pope, however, did not answer but looked away shyly and with a pained and gloomy expression. Let him go, said Zarathustra, after prolonged reflection during which he continued to gaze straight into the old man's eye. Let him go, he is finished, and although it honours you that you speak only good of this dead god, yet you know as well as I who he was, and that he followed strange paths. So, retired from service, we have Zarathustra continue on his path, trying to find the cry of distress from the higher man, and this time, upon his journey, Along his way, he stumbles into a priest, and he's quite offended initially by the priest being there, by his mere presence there. What is he doing in my kingdom? And why is Zarathustra so incredibly offended? Because we have that lengthy relation back into all the previous sections that criticized organized religion as well as a common reoccurring theme of that move towards criticizing also the emphasis upon the afterlife and death. So we have that offense really of how dare this person who argues for the afterlife here, this world slanderer, as it says at the start of the section, be here in my kingdom that precisely argues for the world and the here and now and all the importance of the present. And it also uses the example there of a miracle worker, as he says, or that of someone who lays their hands upon another individual and miraculously through the very miracle of placing their hands, they're suddenly cured of whatever condition it is that they have. And we can see that as well in just contemporary examples where you have various different acts of miracles meant to happen through that exact same example of someone who is meant to believe in God and therefore can cure people of their ailments and in inverted commas there through merely just a simple placing of hands upon them and of course it's complete rubbish because nothing can be simply just cured by laying of hands upon another person and this is the same point that Nietzsche wants to make here is this is what we have in relation to this priest who sits here. Someone who says great things and wants to perform great things. But when we get to the heart of the matter, when we get to the crux of it, or once we analyze exactly what's going on in the sense of laying of hand situation then we realize what a magic trick it ultimately is no greater than what the sorcerer did in the last section and what the sorcerer was all about and why he was called the sorcerer in the first place is because he himself was someone who had no actual belief no actual opinions for himself was that straw man but enabled everybody to sort of reflect their beliefs onto him and he himself would want to say whatever it would be to make the people love him and i didn't use it in the previous episode talking about that but donald trump is a really great example there 
because Trump himself, at least when we look at his election and the whole speeches and so forth he made before he became president, you can sort of identify that key points in there, as well as what the analysts were saying about, well, what is his points about such and such? Because Trump was always moving towards those points of just trying to get people to believe in him as a person and would say whatever it would be just to make the people love him. Same point for the sorcerer in the last section, and it's the same thing for the priest in this section. It's to say, well, it's all this display of a moving and a trickery of hands that all looks good and you're very impressed with it. Once you know how it works, then you realize that you've been fooled in the first place. And of course, you can go into all those fantastic magicians and how they explain the tricks and so forth. But that's the point that Nietzsche wants to make. Once you get into all that understanding and then suddenly you're no longer impressed with these tricks anymore because you know how they work. But let's take a step back for a moment and slightly go into a little bit of the depth of what's going on in part four, because it's quite interesting. And as I said in the start of the last episode, we're sort of going down this whole path of continually hitting a brick wall of trying to find a solid foundation for things. We had with the conversation with the kings, you couldn't trust opinions why not? Because everyone just acted and performed. And so you couldn't really have any deep sense of what that person actually meant or what they actually thought or what was their genuine opinion because they would just perform in order to try and please the kings. So you can't have as a basis for or a foundation, one based on opinions because it's based upon falsity. The same thing when you come to the sorcerer in the last section. Well, if you're going to try and lean on great people, in inverted commas, people who are meant to have great knowledge, how are you meant to trust what they say? Because again, all what they could be doing is trying to make themselves look good, ultimately sell books or sell whatever it is, merchandise and products, and ultimately treating yourself as a product rather than as an actual person giving any worth or meaning or value to anything. And from all that, you could say, well, if you can't base it on opinions or certain meant to be great people, let's say, well, maybe then we should aim a bit higher. Maybe we should create some sort of great ethical model that people can live good lives on. And then it hits into the problem, sort of raised in the leech as a section, to say, well, people will pick and choose what they like from ethical models. They'll take a bit from here, they'll take a bit from there, and what they'll ultimately do is manipulate it and make it work for them and not adhere to any specific given model in any way. And then that again has the problems of, well, it all folds into the psychological makeup of whatever person it is that'll then be the reasons for why they are choosing these specific ideas over others, this specific model over others, and so on. So again, we don't really arrive at any sort of solid form of stability there because it's all very much piecemeal. It's all very much a pick and choose, or another way of putting it is a nice pick and mix sort of idea for ethics. So there's no solid foundation there either. So, from all that, you could say, well, what is the idea that we have so far? We can't base it on opinions. We can't base it on any specific one person that will lead us out of this as a problem. We can't base it upon ethics. So then, where can we base it on? And the traditional move in philosophy is to eventually 
although not always, and of course not for everybody, have that on a divine basis, based upon God as the foundation that will provide an absolutely solid foundation for everything else. Why, might you say, why do you need to make that move towards God as a foundation? Why is that made in a traditional moves within philosophy and who does that? So a great example of who does that is Descartes. And it doesn't happen immediately because that's just a really bad argument as well. But once you go into the meditations and you start working your way through it, you'll start to hit upon problems. And like Descartes for part four here, we're hitting against similar problems. We can't base it upon opinions because these things change all the time. Or as Descartes would say, can be called into doubt. And one of the main things that Descartes wants is to be rid of all doubt and rid of all skepticism because that's not what truth is for Descartes. Truth is an absolute certainty, concrete, always absolutely certain that this is always going to be true. And eventually you move through the meditations and you have the establishment of the first truth that sort of arrived at is the cogito, I think, therefore I am. Famous line, usually appears on t-shirts and so on. And then you eventually move towards God. So why would you want to have God as that foundation? So once you have that initial parts in the meditation, criticizing opinions is also criticizing at the same time an empirical and scientific understanding of the world because that's all based upon variable knowledge. Our scientific understanding very much is in flux and can change within years and centuries and so on. It's all in continual progress. And as I've said, Descartes doesn't like the idea of change. He wants absolute certainty. So he moves away from scientific, empirical understanding towards that of one based upon reason. And then wanting to move towards a metaphysics for the foundation. Because metaphysics is something that's pure, eternal, unchanging, always the same and flawless, all these different qualities come into metaphysics. And so if that's the case, that's exactly what he wants as an idea of what truth is. Then you get a little bit more into it, then it starts to go, well, what can provide that absolute metaphysical basis for things is going to be God. Because God itself as an idea is absolutely pure, is absolutely perfect, and what's the thing that also guarantees that the truth that I arrive at through my reflection, through my use of reason, those are going to be there because my use of reason has that direct relation back into God. So we have then God as that foundation. Then also truths that are arrived at are also flawless within Descartes as well, like the Cogito. And so, as a little detour from Descartes there, we also have, as another example, Spinoza, who argues very much for God as a foundation and basis for things, but in very much a different way from Descartes, of course, because God is not in this separation out from the world sort of looking down upon the world at least in that sort of traditional biblical idea of God sort of looking over the world from the heavens but rather Spinoza's idea is that God is inseparable from nature and so God and nature are sort of one and the same however I'm not quite so knowledgeable on Spinoza I don't really know the absolute bare basics of it all. But that's just an idea of just two quick examples of why there is that move towards God and why is it creeping up a little bit here in part four. And also it gives us an idea here to see that Nietzsche is going to be challenging 
the traditional moves that's normally made of trying to establish precisely a foundation, one that is based upon that divine basis of God. And coming back into the section, we then have the priest is looking for the last pious man. And that as an idea is quite interesting because suddenly we have here as an idea where no longer is it one based upon religion and suddenly everybody being very much in a going to church on a Sunday sort of basis. But now here's the idea that's thrown out there. Suddenly there's only one person left in the entire world that's like that. Suddenly everybody's not bothered with gone to church anymore on the Sunday and religion or that specific or that specific organized religion that's there doesn't have the same effect anymore and what is the problem what has come around what's caused everybody to suddenly lose their faith and it's that line what does all the world know today asked Zarathustra this perhaps that the old god in whom all the world once believed no longer lives that is so answered the old man sadly and i served that old god until his last hour so that's just really a roundabout way of saying that god is dead and everybody has heard and listened and lost their faith because they've realized that God is dead. Now what's quite interesting about this is that we have to sort of go to another of Nietzsche's books, The Gay Signs, also translated as The Joyful Signs, to get the impact of this section and what's happened at this point. Because in the gay signs, we have that very famous line, now infamous line, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him, where we have the paragraph there, or the section 125, where it has a madman making this statement in the marketplace, and declaring God is dead, but then, after this big statement, it says, Here the madman fell silent and looked again at his listeners. They too were silent and looked at him disconcertedly. Finally he threw his lantern on the ground so that it broke into pieces and went out. I come too early, he then said. My time is not yet. This tremendous event is still on its way, wandering. It has not yet reached the ears of men. And so, what is quite interesting, what we can take away from this, is that we have in the Gay Science, written in 1882, that declaration that's made God is dead, but also that it's not the time for that yet. And it's sort of Nietzsche reflecting upon his own time period there and saying, the people are not ready yet for this idea, but eventually people will be ready for it. And so we have sort of the aftermath or a move towards the future in which this has come to pass when we come into the section retired from service, now people are ready for that idea. And to such an extent that we have only one pious person left in the world. And what is this whole thing going on about in the first place? What does it mean by God is dead? Isn't it physically impossible to kill a divine thing? And that's of course correct but you wouldn't be tackling this in the right way if that's how you went about this to say well is it some sort of herculean task of man versus god and so therefore you can just have a good old 
wrestling match or boxing match and eventually we'll just see who wins this man comes out on top and it's not quite getting to that point there but rather it's saying well god has a function in the world and what is the purpose of that function was to explain things that happened in the world we'd have that recourse back to god as the explanation and we could trace that of course back historically to various different civilizations where you can say well historically we have different ideas of of divinity and all these different religions and all these different gods monotheism one god polytheism multiple gods all to explain various different occurrences in the world and to explain various different things that also happen within astronomy so an explanation for things that happen in space and the heavens as well but now in a contemporary situation nietzsche thinks what is the function of god now because we've advanced through our understanding and what's provided that understanding has been science science is been able to provide various different explanations for all those natural occurrences in the world and developed out our knowledge of space and from all that we can see there's nothing divine about it whatsoever and then we also have that nice relation back into that metaphor back historically we could say well we thought more of the world and how it worked much more like magic but now that we've come to understand how things work through science we've lost that magic now because we've saw through the tricks we understand how it works and from all that we can say well now we don't have to have that need for the recourse back to god now in every single given instance because there is a scientific explanation for it in god's place so that's a way of explaining what nietzsche means by god is dead and it's creeped up several times within previous episodes as well because it's one of the things that keeps on creeping up as an idea because it's related into Nietzsche's also idea that knowledge itself is something that is very much in flux and changes throughout time in history and precisely is not something that's eternal, fixed or unchanging. And we can also used the historical examples as well also and used in previous episodes that various different religions as well as gods precisely die once people don't find the need for them anymore and the example of that is the olympian gods through ancient greece and rome we had that whole relation into everybody performing sacrifices performing offerings at temples all trying to appease the gods and now they're just there as monuments to the past no one worships the olympian gods anymore and it's also saying the exact same thing here that now we've reached the point in the section retired from service that these things will just remain like monuments to past civilizations and ideas and coming back to the section then we have the priest trying to find the last pious man and then finds him dead in a hut being mourned by animals and a set of wolves and then the priest wants to find zarathustra because zarathustra is the godless so let's continue on with this discussion between the priest and zarathustra which goes more into the priest's background and psychology between ourselves said the old pope 
becoming cheerful, or, as I may say, spoken beneath three eyes, for he was blind in one eye. In divine matters I am more enlightened than Zarathustra himself, and may well be so. My love served him long years, my will obeyed all his will. A good servant, however, knows everything, and many things, too, that his master hides from himself. He was a hidden god, full of secrecy. Truly, he even came by a son through no other than secret and indirect means. At the door of faith in him stands adultery. Whoever honours him as a god of love does not think highly enough of love itself. Did this god not also want to be judge? But the lover loves beyond reward and punishment. When he was young, this god from the Orient, he was hard and revengeful and built himself a hell for the delight of his favourites. But at length he grew old and soft and mellow and compassionate more like a grandfather than a father, most like a tottery old grandmother. Then he sat shriveled in his chimney corner, fretting over his weak legs, world-weary, weary of willing, and one day suffocated through his excessive pity. Old Pope, Zarathustra interposed at this point, did you see that with your own eyes? It certainly could have happened like that, like that and also otherwise, when gods die, they always die many kinds of death, but very well, one way or another, one way and the other, he is gone, he offended the taste of my ears and eyes, I will say no worse of him, I love everything that is clear-eyed and honest of speech. But he, you must know, old priest, there was something of your nature about him, something of the priestly nature. He was ambiguous. He was also indistinct. How angry he was with us, this snorter of wrath, because we mistook his meaning. But why did he not speak more clearly? And if our ears were to blame, why did he give us ears that were unable to hear him properly? If there was dirt in our ears, very well, who put it there? He had too many failures, this potter, who had not learned his craft. But he took vengeance on his pots and creations because they turned out badly. That was a sin against good taste. There is also good taste in piety, that said at last. Away with such a god! Better no god, better to produce destiny on one's own account, better to be a fool, better to be god oneself. What do I hear? the old pope said at this point, prickling up his ears. O Zarathustra, you are more pious than you believe with such unbelief. Some god in you has converted you to your godlessness. Is it not your piety itself that no longer allows you to believe? in a god, and your exceeding honesty will yet carry you off beyond good and evil too. For behold, what has been reserved for you, you have eyes and hand and mouth, destined for blessing from eternity, one does not bless with hand alone. In your neighbourhood, although you would be the most godless, I scent a stealthy odour of holiness and well-being that comes from long benedictions. It fills me with joy and sorrow. Let me be your guest, O Zarathustra, for a single night. Nowhere on earth shall I be happier now than with you. Amen. So shall it be, said Zarathustra in great astonishment. Up yonder leads the way, there lies Zarathustra's cave. Indeed, I would gladly lead you there myself, venerable man, for I love all pious men. But now a cry of distress calls me hurriedly away from you. I will have no one come to harm in my domain, 
My cave is an excellent refuge, and most of all I should like to set every sad and sorrowful person again on firm land and firm legs. Who, however, could lift your melancholy from your shoulders? I am too weak for that. Truly, we should have to wait a long time before someone reawakened your god for you, for this old god no longer lives. He is quite dead. Thus spoke Zarathustra. So then, continuing on the discussion between Zarathustra and the priest. And so we have the priest saying to Zarathustra that he's been a very devout follower and has been a good servant. But there is many things that the master liked to hide from his servant. And we have then the whole joke about the Immaculate Conception and the whole birth of Christ there where it says at the door of faith in him stands adultery and so what's that getting towards of course is the whole joke that how possibly can you have an immaculate conception that's a complete physical impossibility in fact the whole joke is that and i think it was also made by robin williams in one of his stand-up routines as well as the virgin mary goes to joseph i'm pregnant and joseph turns around to the virgin mary and goes what how and the virgin mary says it's immaculate and joseph turns around and says in reply it better be mary it better be because the whole humor of the situation of course is precisely that point of there's no such thing as immaculate conception because all conception needs two to tango as they would say and then moving on from this we have the relation into loving god in which it then has the line whoever honors him as a god of love does not think highly enough of love itself i think this is a really quite beautiful line in this whole section because within christianity of course is your love of god has got to be placed above everything else completely but nietzsche's making us think here well if we love god what kind of love is it that we're receiving in return for our love and it's really that of an abusive relationship or an abusive partner really that starts to come out as an image here that it's not really that much of a loving person that we're giving our love to and that if you do love god then you're not actually thinking highly of the very idea of love itself because love should be a thing where we receive love of course in a return so that when we love someone we expect that love to be given back to us through our partner we love them and we want them to love us back whilst as Nietzsche saying here this doesn't happen when we have this whole relationship with God and then it goes into the whole biblical relation of well they had the whole old testament god whilst he was young he was a bit you know wild as youths are and he did all sorts of things that young gods would like to do go around doing all the things in the old testament old wrathful god and then he becomes older so that's of course then a move from the old testament into the new testament where he's then saying well this older god that appears in the new testament is precisely then one that's older like a grandfather and is precisely world weary and it's quite an interesting point that because it's saying here that when we reach old age then you become weary of the world and weary of life and also in a way kind of long for death really that release of all the suffering and everything that you've went through 
And you have that in relation to Socrates in the Phaedo, where Nietzsche precisely has that argument pointed right at Socrates there, where Socrates is suicidal, Nietzsche would say, because he wants to willingly take the hemlock. He's had a chance to escape from the prison, and he doesn't take it. Instead, he sits there and quite happily drinks the poison and dies and so why does Socrates have that mindset in Plato's Phaedo one of the reasons if if you look at his psychological makeup Nietzsche would say was that is because he's an old man he's lost his lust for life basically and this is why we have a philosophy in Phaedo from Plato all about this move towards the soul the afterlife and death and here similarly we have the moves that's made Nietzsche says in the New Testament that's comparable to that and then Nietzsche moves into a discussion of pity and how God has died because of his pity and we have that in the line there then he sat shriveled in his chimney corner fretting over his weak legs world weary weary of willing and one day suffocated through his excessive pity and in the previous part we've also had you served him to the last asked zarathustra thoughtfully after profound silence do you know how he died is it true what they say that pity choked him and for nietzsche's view on pity as it pops back up every now and then, I found a really great little article on medium.com and the title of the article is Nietzsche on Pity and it's written by Brevin and I'm just going to read a little bit here from the article because it gives a really nice little summary of Nietzsche's view here. Nietzsche doesn't see a true friend as one who pities you, but if you have a suffering friend, be a resting place for his suffering, but a hard bed, as it were. Thus you will profit him best. That was a little quote. The true friend doesn't enable their friend to feel sorry for themselves, and neither commiserates with them in their toil, providing a sense of support, a resting place, only in order to become better, and to use this or that event to profit them. Nietzsche believes true friends help each other towards self-mastery, towards self-perfection, towards self-overcoming. And then also we have a fantastic relation that helps clarify this whole point in relation to parenting at the same time. So continuing on just a little bit more here. In the same breath, the difference between pitying and not pitying can be seen in common occurrence that a parent will be put in. Their child falls down while playing. Say, one parent rushes over, is overly concerned and unduly sympathetic to their child. They pick them up and assuage their passing distress. Or, another parent remains calm, attends to any serious injuries, if any, and encourages them with love and good content and their child to get back up, shake it off, and go return playing. The overprotective neurotic parent hunts for pity power. The strong parent simply empowers their child, relaying the message to be strong and tough and resilient in an attempt to foster a will to manage and to handle all the approaching blights and afflictions that they'll encounter. Pity soothes, relieves, and comforts, and Nietzsche has a more hardened, warrior-like, pitiless outlook on life. He was an opponent to religion for a number of reasons, and one thing in particular was the kind of man they attracted and molded. Weak, susceptible, anti-individualistic, untested, crutched. He felt that a religion or ideology that preaches pity and that indulges suffering is a religion or ideology of comfortableness, or more precisely, a religion or ideology that is responsible for producing the indolent. And so it gives there such fantastic examples of a friendship as well as parenting there for Nietzsche's view of pity. And 
is to say, well, precisely all those points, is that if we take the parenting example used, there's no benefit given to the child if you're just simply a parent that just smothers their child in comfort and protection all the time, but rather, like the other parent, of course, address any injuries that they may have, fix them up, but ultimately tell them to go back and get back on the horse is a good way of putting it, or go back and do some more playing. And don't simply just be sat there and just feel sorry for yourself. And that's what half the problem is that Nietzsche sees as well with the whole religious outlook is that it's so much within that comforting and make you feel sorry for yourself that there's no sense of empowerment going on. So it's very much like that neurotic parent who just wants to wrap their children up in wool, never letting them to really go explore and enjoy themselves in the world. But rather, as it says there as well for the friend, the true friend will not only just be the one that's there for you in the sense of just comforting you and you don't also just want someone who's a yes man or someone who just always says the right thing that you want to hear but rather wants you to better yourself or overcome your situation get back on the horse again as they say and that usually tends to creep up in friendships with relationship problems that a person might have or through one of their friends going through a sad breakup is not just to comfort the person but also try to help them overcome that breakup and try to make them feel better about the situation and to empower them through it at the same time. And then continuing on with the section we have more examples of the way in which God is like this abusive parent or an ab abusive relationship in some way where we have God taking his anger out on his creations because they turned out badly and the example they're used of is the potter taking all his hatred out on his pots because they were made badly but what's interesting here that sort of wraps up the section is when the priest has his ears suddenly sparked of interest because then he says to Zarathustra, Oh, Zarathustra, you are more pious than you believe with such unbelief. Some god in you has converted you to your godlessness. And then after that little brief discussion, it then wraps up with the priest wanting to go into Zarathustra's cave. And it seems to be quite the hip happening location at the minute with all these different characters there from the previous sections as well. But this whole idea of, wait a minute, Zarathustra, you're meant to be godless, but hmm, there seems to be a bit of piousness in you. You seem to have a little sense of belief that's going on. And it goes back into that wonderful section on the apostates there, where it's also Nietzsche reflecting on the whole religious faith, devotion, outlook. And it's to say, well, even if you get rid of the organized religion, whatever one it is, even if these things crumble over time, it, we still have this whole mentality of devotion, faith, belief, but it doesn't have to be, of course, in this religious specific way, but towards other things. And of course, easy example of that is the way in which we idolize celebrities such as musicians, for example, placing them on a very high pedestal, putting posters on the wall, the idolization of Jimi Hendrix, for example, as this godlike guitar player. But what's also incredibly interesting is to also, if we attribute this just to atheism, 
then there's a kind of irony at work that even though there is no belief in God whatsoever, there's still, ironically, a belief that you don't believe. And so, within that whole idea of atheism itself has its own belief structure and tenets that it believes in. And we could also attribute this to the idea of science and scientific truth that people very much uphold and believe in the truth of whatever discoveries that are found within science, which itself has its own belief system in a way. And it all goes back to just the everyday examples as well that we can go to where David Hume has that fantastic example of just the everyday sense of believing in the fact that the sun will come up every single day. So that's just a quick few examples of some of the different ways that belief functions. And that about wraps up another episode as well, going into the discussion about Nietzsche's famous statement of God is dead. And we've seen that nice transition from where Nietzsche said people weren't ready for the idea in gay science to now this whole image of one last pious man that's still alive in the section retired from service. And in the next episode, we'll be continuing on through part four of Zarathustra into the section entitled The Ugliest Man. Many thanks for listening to the episode. I hope you enjoyed my discussion of the section Retired from Service from Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Feel free to check out my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dissecting philosophy. Feel free to drop me an email at my address dissectingphilosophy at gmail.com. Tip me a coffee at ko-fi.com forward slash dissecting philosophy. And I could also be found on Twitter at I am a rubber man. Many thanks for listening and I hope you'll join me next time.